Greetings, fellow explorers, and welcome to the Lore Explorer podcast, where we take a look at the lore and history of various media, from video games and movies to real-life figures and events. In this episode, we'll be talking about Bioshock. This topic was suggested by patron Dalton Troy. Thanks again for all the support. Bioshock is one of my favorite video games, and it really set the standard for the way video games were meant to be experienced. Not only were the visuals groundbreaking for the time, but it also had a meta-narrative that a lot of video games didn't really have. With this episode, I don't want to give a beat-by-beat -beat description of the campaign, but rather a detailed look at the ideas and history of the settings and characters while tying them into the major points of the story. Chronicling the conception of Rapture, expanding on the ideals it was built on, and really delving into the lore of the world. This episode will be more worthwhile for those who have completed Bioshock. If you haven't played it, I highly recommend doing so before listening to this episode. With that in mind, let's dive right in. Bioshock takes place in 1960, in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. Jack, who survives a plane crash, discovers a lighthouse with a statue on the inside atop a banner that reads, No gods, no kings, only man. The stairway leads to the underwater city of Rapture, a utopia that has been left in disrepair due to a civil war. You, the player, assume the role of Jack, who discovers a bathysphere in the lighthouse. A uh, bathysphere is a small submersible to transport people from the surface down to the underwater city. While Jack descends into the water, he is greeted by a projection screen, and we are introduced to a man named Andrew Ryan. He gives a speech that sets the tone for the entire game. I think that this monologue really represents the ideals that Rapture was built upon, and I want to quote the entire text because it's honestly really well done. It reads, I am Andrew Ryan, and I am here to ask you a question. Is a man not entitled to the sweat of his brow? No, says the man in Washington, it belongs to the poor. No, says the man in the Vatican. It belongs to God. No, says the man in Moscow, it belongs to everyone. I rejected those answers. Instead, I chose something different. I chose the impossible. I chose rapture. A city where the artist would not fear the censor, where the scientists would not be bound by petty morality, where the great would not be constrained by the small. And with the sweat of your brow, Rapture can become your city as well. Although we play as Jack, the real main character of the story is Andrew Ryan, the mastermind behind the city of Rapture. Before we start with the gameplay, I want to give a detailed background for Andrew Ryan, Rapture, and other major characters with information that happens before the game takes place. Andrew Ryan was born in a village near Minsk, in Belarus, which is east of Poland. His birth name was Andrei Ryanovsky. During World War I, Minsk was caught in the middle of the crossfire. In 1917, Ryan witnessed the Russian Revolution, where the Bolsheviks, led by Vladimir Lenin, seized power and destroyed the Tsarist rule over Russia. The Bolsheviks would become the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, completely transforming Russian society. During the revolution, Ryan's family business was destroyed, Bolsheviks killed his aunt and uncle for supporting Ryan's father and others who opposed the communist regime, and eventually fled to Constantinople. Ryan's experiences under Soviet rule led him to his personal philosophy, 
which he would carry with him for the rest of his life. Great men made the modern world through their own work and effort, and anyone who relied on others or the government were parasites. Ryan fully subscribes to the objectivism philosophy. Objectivism is a philosophy developed by the Russian-American writer Ayn Rand. It's prominently displayed in her two most famous works, 1943's The Fountainhead and 1957's Atlas Shrugged. Rand has been quoted saying that, Objectivism is the concept of man as a heroic being, with his own happiness as the moral purpose of his life, with productive achievement as his noblest activity, and reason as his only absolute. Objectivism's central tenets are that reality exists independently of consciousness, that we have direct contact with reality through sense perception. In simpler terms, the only truth is that which we can see and understand, and that truth is absolute. What we can observe and prove exists, and what we cannot does not. Rational thought is the only true way to judge anything. In the sphere of social and moral terms, the only good is for man to act in his own self-interest. Not to the direct detriment of others, however. For example, charity goes against this notion, but making a deal which puts you ahead in the end is okay. Through the objectivism lens, government's only function should be to properly punish the parasites, which are freeloaders, thieves, and murderers, for holding back society. Aspects such as minimum wage and welfare are considered morally wrong as well. Art should represent man as a free spirit in charge of his own destiny and represent the world in a rational light. In short, objectivism represents self-interest and rational thought to be the only way of thinking. Objectivism also plays into the architecture of rapture as well. Art Deco is described as being representative of luxury, glamour, and exuberance in social and technological progress. This fits right in line with Ryan's philosophy in the game. The tall, luxurious buildings with upscale interior are the finest that was possible during that time. The best examples of Art Deco in the real world are the Prometheus and Atlas statues in Rockefeller Center, and the Empire State Building, all of which reside in New York. Now, at the age of nine, Ryan fled to America in 1919, where he believed that great men could prosper. This is when he changed his name to Andrew Ryan and fled just before the formation of the Soviet Union in 1922. Andrew Ryan is also an anagram for Ayn Rand. For the next decade, Ryan was devoted to the capitalist system that made him incredibly wealthy. He struck oil on his property and invested wisely afterwards. He began to doubt the American system in the 1930s, however, with the introduction of new state-run social programs such as the New Deal. He believed President Roosevelt to spoon-feed the Americans, which was much like the Bolsheviks did back in Russia. Over time, Ryan became more and more dissociated with the American way. He owned a large forest plot of land to use as a personal retreat, and the government demanded the land for a national park. Instead of handing it over, Ryan burned it to the ground, thus denying the parasites access to it. The last straw for Ryan was the destruction of Hiroshima and Nagasaki with the atomic bombs in World War II. In his eyes, the bomb was the ultimate corruption of his ideals. Science and determination harnessed for destruction. 
creating a weapon that gave the weak the ability to destroy anything that they couldn't seize. Ryan's response was to use his entire fortune to build Rapture, a place where the world's best and brightest could prosper without the constraint of government, religion, and similar established institutions. Rapture would be built on the seafloor in the North Atlantic, with a suitable location being picked in between Iceland and Greenland. One of the first involved was Sullivan, a trusted man who was already in Ryan's employment at the time. With Sullivan's experience in law enforcement, he was made head of Rapture's security. Ryan gathered many construction experts and secured the architects Simon Wales and Daniel Wales to draft the design for many of Rapture's buildings. Needing workers to build Rapture, Ryan hired many of the most talented and skilled engineers, workmen, and mechanics. Many, like Bill McDonough, shared Ryan's ideals and saw Rapture as a new start where they could rise above the impairments of the parasite-ridden world. Beginning in late 1945, Ryan contracted a series of companies to begin the construction of Rapture. The materials were submerged to the ocean floor via a giant state-of-the-art submersible platform nicknamed the Sinker. Deep-sea welders and mechanics created a foundation for the city by sinking pilings and girders deep into the rock and silt. Eventually, the Sinker was permanently anchored on the sea bottom. Prefabricated buildings with frames of aluminum were assembled near the surface, submerged, and anchored into the foundations. By November 5, 1946, Rapture began receiving its first residents. The major construction period continued until the end of the 1940s, with smaller projects continuing in and around the city until Rapture's construction was fully completed in 1951. For a time, Rapture was everything Ryan dreamed it would be, a paradise of freedom and prosperity. From 1946 to 1958, Rapture experienced tremendous economic progress and solid political stability. As Ryan predicted, citizens in Rapture created a culture of entrepreneurship that was unrivaled, with numerous businesses established and unprecedented scientific advancements. With Rapture at its apogee, Ryan's greatest supporters maintained control of the many sectors of the city, such as Sander Cohen in Fort Frolic and J.S. Steinman in the Medical Pavilion. Ryan had hired a man named Carlson Fiddle to build Ryan Amusements, a theme park that doubled as a propaganda tool for the children of Rapture, with Ryan himself providing narration for many of the rides and animatronic set pieces. Its primary purpose was to warn of the evils of the surface. However, despite its apparent success, cracks soon began to emerge within Rapture's society, specifically between the social classes. Being a pure individualist, capitalist society focused exclusively on the pursuit of profit, Rapture subtly began to condone things such as greed, elitism, and others, beginning to drive a wedge between the upper and lower classes of society. Being devoid of any social programs, charities, and similar to support the less fortunate elements of society, the poor of Rapture were left with little to no means of improving their economic standing trapping them at the bottom of Rapture society. The economic system of Rapture alienated the city's less fortunate citizens, who, when hard times came, began to resent Ryan's society as cold-hearted and elitist. 
Things seemed to take a turn for the better at some point between 1948 and 1952, when an incident in Rapture's docks led to the discovery of Adam, a chemical substance that, if refined into a special serum called a plasmid and used alongside with an actuating chemical called Eve, would allow their user to alter their genetic code without any limitations whatsoever, aside from their own imagination, allowing the user to change themselves according to their own design and needs. After settling into Rapture, while walking on the docks of Port Neptune, a woman named Bridget Tenenbaum discovered a smuggler whose crippled hands had been restored to normal functionality after being bitten by a sea slug. She researched the slug and found a substance from it that could heal damaged cells, even resurrect them, and in further research explored its use. It was dubbed Adam, and it allowed people to manipulate slash splice their DNA opening up the possibility of giving them superpowers through the use of plasmids and expanded abilities using gene tonics. Dr. Bridget Tenenbaum grew up near Minsk, where Ryan was born. Her father was German, and she was raised in the Jewish faith. When she was 16 years old, she became a prisoner at the Nazi concentration camp at Auschwitz, where she observed German doctors, including Josef Mengele, experimenting on prisoners. Occasionally, when the Germans made scientific errors, she would correct them, and discovered that she had a vocation for science. Eventually, the Germans put her to work assisting in their medical experiments. While the rest of her family was killed, she survived the concentration camp, likely due to her aid to the doctors. Tenenbaum was diagnosed with high-functioning autism, but didn't let that define her and later gained a reputation as a scientific genius. In 1946, she mysteriously disappeared. Speculations said she had been taken to America or the Soviet Union, like many scientists after World War II, or possibly that she had been the victim of retaliation for her collaboration with the Nazis. Her true destination, however, was rapture. Tenenbaum had been turned away by all the reputable research facilities, but a man named Frank Fontaine saw the value of her discovery and agreed to fund her research. Frank Fontaine built a criminal empire through smuggling goods from the surface, allowing him to obtain the funds to finance the creation of a sprawling atom industry. At Fontaine's urging, she engineered a way to mass-produce atom in the bodies of hosts. Tenenbaum and Fontaine discovered the only hosts capable of producing sufficient amounts of atom were young girls, originating the Little Sisters. More on them when we come across them in the timeline of the game. Tenenbaum developed her discovery and quickly became a major figure in Rapture's scientific community, the most well-known woman in Rapture and ensuring financial success for herself and Fontaine Futuristics. She eventually discovered Adam was addictive and had severe withdrawal side effects requiring it to be taken regularly. Over time, Adam caused mental and physical deterioration. After using Adam, the user would develop an extremely strong addiction to it, forcing them to take more Adam to stave off the addiction, as otherwise the withdrawal symptoms would drive them insane, which served only to worsen the addiction even more and exacerbate the need for Adam, forcing the user to consume even more Adam with every subsequent dose becoming bigger than the last, escalating the cycle and bringing with itself an insatiable hunger for more Adam and a gradual mental degradation and breakdown.
The mass production of Adam only served to exacerbate Rapture's addiction to the chemical, with it soon becoming vital for Rapture's continued function. Fontaine's power and influence over Rapture increased greatly, and he soon begun to drum up plans for exploiting the class differences of Rapture to overthrow Andrew Ryan and take over Rapture for himself. It was the introduction of Adam and the societal class divide that led to the beginning of the Civil War in Rapture. Ryan instructed Security Chief Sullivan to put an end to the smuggling ring, employing increasingly severe measures to prove the connection to Frank Fontaine. On September 12, 1958, Fontaine was killed in a shootout with Ryan's men. In the aftermath of Fontaine's death, Ryan took a step that many took to be a betrayal of his philosophy, the nationalization of Fontaine futuristics. Although he built Rapture to escape the sort of big government that could take over private industry, Ryan was forced to engage in precisely the same behavior. This move shook Rapture to its core and proved to be significant in its decline. Even Ryan's longtime friend Bill McDonough resigned from the Central Council in protest. Two months later, all who had been identified as involved in Fontaine's crimes had been arrested and put into Fontaine's department store, which Ryan had turned into a prison to house them. This further unsettled the citizens of Rapture, as a hundred or more people were imprisoned so quickly. The population's worsening addiction to Adam soon brought with itself a gradual deterioration of order, followed by widespread civil unrest. This forced Andrew Ryan to take drastic measures to restore order, resorting to increasingly authoritarian means to maintain control, with him dissolving the Rapture Central Council and installing himself as the despotic ruler of Rapture. Ryan began issuing even more restrictive laws to limit people's freedoms and introducing harsher punishments towards problem citizens. Then in comes a man named Atlas, a representation of the lower working class of Rapture. He was a fisherman that saw the corrupt dystopia of Rapture for what it was. Atlas charmed the masses by handing out supplies to the poor, telling the disillusioned what they wanted to hear. He channeled the growing discontent and disenfranchisement of the poorest citizens, setting the stage for the Civil War, which would soon tear Rapture apart. With Frank Fontaine declared dead by the Rapture Council, Atlas used poorhouses he left behind, such as Fontaine's home for the poor, to recruit disillusioned citizens and build up supporters against Ryan. Making Hestia Chambers and Apollo Square their headquarters, Atlas's followers gathered weapons, ammunition, plasmids, and gene tonics to arm themselves. This did not go unnoticed by Ryan, who had Atlas and some of his close followers sent to the Fontaine's department store to join the remnants of Fontaine's supporters. In an attempt to increase his supporters, Atlas set out to recruit those within the facility with the promise of revenge and righteousness, which meant swaying the spliced masses. He was able to keep tabs on news as well as relay information or warnings via telegraph from his fellow rebels up in Rapture. It was uncertain when they were going to get out, so a mass attack in the city was planned. When the time came, Atlas had sent the message for his people to prepare as he let a brick out of the prison. On December 31, 1958, 
Atlas led a number of lower-class citizens in the series of attacks on Rapture's upper-class areas and population. The place that was hit first and hardest was the Kashmir Restaurant, which was hosting a New Year's Eve masquerade ball filled with the city's most wealthy and important people. An audio diary was recorded by Diane McClintock, Ryan's lover, at the exact moment when the explosions and attack began. She was injured, but survived. This came to be known as the first act of the Rapture Civil War. This soon escalated into an all-out civil war between Atlas and Ryan, made worse by the mental degradation caused by Adam addiction in the city's population. Traditional projectile weapons were used and were soon joined by plasmids, first by Atlas's splicers and later employed by Ryan's supporters. As the conflict went on, a plasmid-based arms race began to take place, with both Atlas's and Ryan's forces beginning to use more and more plasmids and add them on themselves to gain an edge against their adversaries. This was not about who could build the best guns and the biggest bombs. Instead, it was about who could become less of a man and more of a monster. Ryan and Atlas then engaged in a destructive guerrilla war that brought ruin to the city and claimed the lives of an untold number of its citizens. Some hoped that a peaceful resolution to the conflict could be achieved and that Ryan would be forced to address many of Atlas's supporters' grievances. However, Ryan refused to compromise with parasites and killers and was intent on fighting to the end, believing that giving in to Atlas would bring down the entire city. Plasmid technologies played a central role in the conflict, with the genetic arms race, as McDonough coined it, leading to the development of more combat plasmids and gene tonics, as well as more and more destructive weapons to counter them. Ryan's unpopular war measures alienated many of his supporters, turning them against him, as did Ryan's lover, Diane McClintock, who later sided with Atlas. Ryan survived at least three assassination attempts and kept the corpses of those betrayers mounted on the wall outside of his office as a warning to his enemies. As the Civil War deepened, Yi Su Chong proposed an unconventional means of breaking the stalemate that divided the city. To alter the structure of commercial plasmids to make citizens susceptible to mental suggestion by pheromones. We'll get into Su Chong more when we encounter him in the game's timeline. To many, this represented the ultimate betrayal of Ryan's philosophy, to deny citizens of their free will. Ryan, facing destruction of his city, agreed to Suchong's suggestion, claiming that if Atlas and his supporters were to win, they would turn their opponents into slaves and free will would vanish regardless. These pheromones proved decisive in turning the tide of the Civil War in Ryan's favor. Atlas, with his situation now desperate, and with few unspliced followers who were not susceptible to Ryan's pheromones, were forced to use his ace in the hole, which we'll talk about more later. The main conflict lasted for around four months, with the continuing violence causing great destruction to cohesive society and serious damage to infrastructure within Rapture. In the end, a large portion of the population became insane atom-addicted splicers, while the rest were either killed by the splicers, committed suicide, or died of starvation. The destruction and devastation of the Rapture Civil War brought society to an end. We are now up to the timeline of where the game takes place. 
Jack descends into Rapture only about a year after these events. He arrives in Rapture and his bathysphere is attacked by a splicer. Due to excessive atom consumption, the splicer's body and minds have been deformed beyond repair. They have become dependent on Adam both mentally and physically. Many still wear masquerade ball masks, perhaps as Atlas suggested, out of shame at how Adam has deformed their bodies. Although the term splicer can be applied to anyone who has altered their genetic structure with Adam, it has since become the term used only to describe those who have become addicted to the substance and have lost their sanity and become physically deformed from the addiction. In the beginning, Jack explores the different areas of Rapture under the guidance of Atlas, who speaks to him through a shortwave radio. Jack's main objective, at first, is to find a functional bathysphere that will return him to the surface. Atlas promises to help him if in return Jack will save his trapped family and Neptune's bounty. Immediately after leaving the bathysphere chamber, Jack finds a gatherer's garden vending machine. The gatherer's garden was where the populace bought their plasmids. He promptly injects himself with his first dose of Adam. Why he does this, I'm not entirely sure. Seems like kind of an odd choice ramming a foreign substance into your bloodstream, but it needing to happen for the context of the gameplay. On his way there, he encounters his first little sister in the Footlight Theater. The Footlight Theater was once a small playhouse where Sander Cohen's Happy Chappie and other small productions were carried out. The theater catered to anyone wanting to enjoy a show, including working and middle-class citizens. Atlas tells Jack that the only way he can survive is to use his abilities granted by plasmids, and that he must kill the Little Sisters, accompanied by their hulking armored protectors, the Big Daddies, to extract their atom. Jack leaves them alone and moves on. Now, I want to talk about the Little Sisters and Big Daddies. They're probably the most recognizable figures of the Bioshock series. I'll also be talking about Yisu Chong in this section, as he was instrumental in the creation of them both. For a little background on Su Chong, he was the son of a lowly house servant in rural Korea. During World War II, Su Chong was accused of selling opium to the Japanese during their occupation of Korea to fund his experiments. Much of his life before Rapture isn't known, but he was spared during the war because he supplied the opium to the Japanese troops. In December 1946, he fled to Rapture. Now, little sisters are young girls who have been genetically altered and mentally conditioned to reclaim Adam from corpses around Rapture. Little sisters are almost always accompanied by a big daddy. The Adam-producing sea slugs did not naturally produce a large enough quantity for serious research and commercial exploitation. Dr. Bridget Tenenbaum developed a procedure whereby a sea slug was implanted in a human host's stomach, and a symbiotic interaction between the host and slug yielded up to 30 times the quantity of usable atom. Female children, eventually known as little sisters after implantation, were found to be the only viable hosts. Although Tenenbaum hoped to be able to keep the children in a vegetative state, it was found they had to be fully functional to produce the atom. They still maintained many of the ordinary characteristics of small children, laughing, playing, smiling, and singing. Each little sister is a young girl between 5 and 10 years of age. The girls are clothed in dirty dresses of various colors that reach just below their knees. 
All of the little sisters are barefoot while they explore the halls of rapture. Due to their fast regeneration, they can walk on any harsh surface without problems. The little sisters are nearly invulnerable to damage while they have the sea slugs within them. Little sisters can even survive being underwater. When one is struck, her flesh will glow an unnatural golden color, showing the effects of fast regeneration due to Adam. However, even with the fast regeneration of Adam, the girls are still vulnerable. The little sisters could be killed by splicers who wanted to extract the Adam they contained by forced removal of the sea slug. Although little sisters are invincible and able to regenerate any damage, this invincibility is not perfect. An example of this is if the little sister were to break her legs, forcing them at odd angles, they would heal so quickly that the bones would fuse together at these angles. To be set right, they would have to be broken repeatedly due to the almost instant healing process. Furthermore, little sisters are not immune to the resulting pain. Frank Fontaine created his little sister's orphanage in Apollo Square and other locations as a front to exploit the children as his supply of hosts for Adam production. When Andrew Ryan took over Fontaine Futuristics, he discovered the existence of the children. He found them appalling, but had to accept the necessity of their existence to generate the quantity of Adam rapture now required. It wasn't long before the entire city became aware of where Adam was really coming from. He shut down those false orphanages and continued to use the Little Wonders educational facility to house the existing Adam's hosts. With the city's Adam addiction endemic and Adam's use to fight the Civil War, shortages were becoming critical. Eventually, as the Civil War's body count grew and the shortages increased, a solution to get additional Adam led to using the children to obtain Adam from corpses. Little Sister Adam hosts were mentally and physically prepared for this grim harvesting role. Ryan, to negate the aberrance of the population, portrayed the Little Sisters in a marketing gimmick, their image being used on plasmid and tonic vending machines, gatherers' gardens, and even produced toy dolls of them. Rapture public announcements introduced them as the salvation of the city, a reassurance of continuing Adam production. With the growing chaos of the Civil War, additional little girls started to be kidnapped directly from their parents. Dr. Yi Su Chong, realizing that the need for Adam was greater than the amount produced by the little sisters themselves, pioneered a way for them to recycle Adam from the blood of dead splicers greatly increasing their atom yield. Naturally, the children were unwilling to cooperate. To overcome this basic obstacle, Dr. Su Chong created methods to mentally condition the children. This produced a neurological impulse to recognize the bodies of dead splicers as angels to make this grisly process of extraction and consuming their atom-rich blood appealing for the girls. Like many of the tools in Rapture, the Little Sisters Atom Extractor syringes were fabricated from common items, large needles, hose nozzles, and baby bottles. To make Little Sisters more effective in their task, they were heavily conditioned to see the world of Rapture very different from reality. Instead of seeing the dark, deteriorated state of the city, they saw an idealized child's world, with rosy marble floors, pink or red drapings, the flowering vines growing everywhere. Little sisters saw their big daddies as noble golden knights, 
and saw big sisters as brides or princesses with elegant ballroom apparel. Statues appeared to them as heroic big daddies, pools of blood as rose petals, flies as butterflies, random fires on the floor as lit fireplaces, weapons as red plastic toy guns, and the dead bodies of splicers as angels. Men and women lying in elegant repose with the outline of a halo and angelic wings surrounding them. Splicers themselves appeared as handsome and beautiful, taking the forms of elegantly dressed men and women in masquerade masks, conversing civilly when in reality they were violently fighting. This dream world persisted in the girls' day-to-day -day experience, except for occasional lapses where their senses were brought abruptly back to the grim, twisted reality of Rapture's decay whenever they were frightened or startled. This was also shown to happen while concentrating on the process of gathering Adam from a corpse. However, this could just be due to the Big Daddy temporarily losing control over the girl while she harvests the Adam. Before I talk about the bonding process, I want to talk about the creation of the Big Daddies. Big Daddies were originally created by Su Chong to serve as Rapture's maintenance workers, to help in later construction projects, and to do the menial work of Rapture that was not profitable. Rosies riveted panels and windows while bouncers drilled deep-sea rocks for expansion of the city. They are genetically enhanced human beings who have had their skin and organs grafted into an enormous diving suit, with Alpha Series being an apparent exception to the grafting process, though still heavily spliced. Their primary purpose is to protect little sisters while they escort them around Rapture. Aside from the Alpha series, Big Daddies communicate by uttering haunting sounds similar to that of whale calls. Alpha series communicate with low inhuman grunts and roars. Big Daddies have a bioluminescent chemical substance which filled the helmet, displaying its state of emotion or mind. The Big Daddy has three different colors he will display, green being friendly, yellow showing indifference, and red indicating rage. With physical and neurological drives in place, the little sisters eagerly pursued gathering Adam in rapture. The Adam coursing through their bodies made them virtually indestructible, immediately repairing any damaged tissue. However, they still had the stature and strength of small girls, not to mention their constant hallucinatory state. Thus, they were a constant target for abduction and exploitation. Dr. Su Chong, in light of the rising mortality rate of Little Sisters, initiated the Protector Program. The idea was to create a series of protectors that would defend the Little Sisters from splicer attacks so they could gather Adam without interference. This ambition proved to be more of a challenge than anticipated by the scientists, and numerous attempts were needed to find the right balance of Adam-based conditioning in both the gatherer and protector. Despite the tests and trials through the hands of a third party, the final key to the bond was found to be quid pro quo, as both discover that one could not survive without the other. The results of the program had each little sister paired with a big daddy. They were both conditioned into more of a father-daughter relationship. The bond was further strengthened through conditioning and employing pheromones. The pheromone produced by the big daddy attracted the little sisters, and its counterpart, produced by the Little Sisters, instinctively drove the Big Daddies to defend them with their lives. Once Big Daddies came into full production, 
The little sisters were also put through a course of Pavlovian psychological exercises designed to force them into rejecting all positive feelings towards any mother-type figure and instead place all of their affection upon a generic Big Daddy archetype. As a result, the little girls see every Big Daddy protecting them as the same person. Because of the pheromone in Chong's conditioning regimen, the little sisters are strongly attached to the Big Daddies, affectionately calling them a number of pet names such as Mr. Bubbles or Mr. B. When a Big Daddy is killed, its little sister will stop whatever she is doing and mourn its death. However, the strong bond between the pairs make the Big Daddies highly aggressive, prompting Ryan to issue public warnings against approaching any little sister to prevent any accidents involving citizens or interference. Su Chong was impaled by a Big Daddy after getting frustrated with his work and striking a little sister, killed by his own creation. With an understanding of the little sisters and Big Daddies, let's get back into the game. After encountering the little sister and Big Daddy, Jack continues to head for Neptune's bounty to rescue Atlas's family. This proves to be more difficult than it seemed at first, as Andrew Ryan notices the intrusion and cuts off access to Neptune keeping close tabs on Jack. Mistaking Jack for a CIA or KGB spy sent to report Rapture's location and make an already disintegrating situation worse, Ryan sends waves of splicers to deal with him, to no avail. Jack is forced to detour through Medical Pavilion, the wing of the deranged cosmetic surgeon J.S. Steinman. From the entrance, a corridor leads further into the pavilion, with many advertisements for Steinman's surgery operations and other health services in Rapture. A ghostly vision appears to Jack as he reaches the other side, showing one of Steinman's disfigured patients after the surgeon became obsessed with asymmetry. Jack can see many of Steinman's works of art painted on the floors and walls, as well as mutilated corpses left from Steinman's operations. In many cases, the mad doctor took photographs of female faces and modified them in eerie ways before posing them on the walls like framed artworks. His audio diaries are the first real exposure the player has to the total effects, mental and physical, of repeated splicing. One reading, Adam denies us any excuse for not being beautiful. The left side leads to the funeral services area with the Twilight Fields funeral homes and the Eternal Flame crematorium. As Jack travels through the tunnel to Dr. Steinman's aesthetic ideals, Steinman can be seen on the television monitor addressing the moral obligation of beauty. When Jack enters the lobby of his domain, Steinman can be overheard wondering why humans have two of most body parts. The minute Steinman sees Jack approach, he rushes into the corridor leading to his surgery, chucking a grenade behind him. The explosion causes Rubble to block the entrance. After Jack removes the debris, Steinman sets up a turret and sends a security bot to attack Jack before retreating to his operating theater to continue his art. Now to talk about Steinman. J.S. Steinman was born into a Jewish-American family and was a respected medical professional at the Benjamin Church Medical College. Steinman had a successful career as an orthopedic surgeon, but earned his highest accolades in the field of plastic surgery, inventing techniques that revolutionized the field. 
He was sorely missed by his friends and colleagues after disappearing to go to Rapture. Because of his great renown in the field of cosmetic surgery, Steinman was one of those invited to Rapture by Andrew Ryan. There, he set up a medical practice in the medical pavilion level of Rapture and offered beauty to those who could afford it. When Adam became available, Steinman saw it as an opportunity to revolutionize his field, making it possible for surgeons to truly, quote-unquote, sculpt flesh with ease. However, the negative side effects of repeated Adam use soon caught up with Steinman, and his mind deteriorated. A perfectionist, Steinman fell in love with his work, so much so that he became obsessed with human anatomy. Wanting to become a, quote-unquote, Picasso of surgery, Steinman began to mutilate his unfortunate patient's bodies in horrific ways, usually resulting in death. Many splicers refer to him throughout the Bioshock series, usually saying that Steinman will fix their deformities even in his current state of mind. Dr. Steinman, growing so utterly obsessed with making his patients beautiful, began to hallucinate Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of beauty, and looked upon her down the road of insanity. In 1959, Steinman continued further along his descent into insanity. He murdered his nurse, Miss Chavez, when she threatened to turn him into the rapture constabulary. After he ran out of willing patience, he began working on splicers that Sander Cohen had captured in Fort Frolic. He now resides in his operation theater, always hoping to achieve perfection. Jack finally catches up with Steinman, who is operating on a female splicer. He shouts to Aphrodite, explaining that he wants to make them beautiful, but they always turn out wrong. He points to a crucifix displaying a female slicer to his left, exclaiming she was too fat. Another to his right, exclaiming she was too tall. Another one above him, exclaiming she was too symmetrical. Steinman then notices Jack and shrieks at his ugliness as he sends a barrage of machine gun fire towards him. After a plasmid-fueled gunfight, Steinman is killed. Jack grabs the keys off Steinman to head towards the emergency access Ryan blocked off earlier as he encounters a lone little sister. With her big daddy dead next to her, a splicer rushes in for the kill as he's shot from the balcony. This is when Jack first meets Tenenbaum, saving the little sister's life. Atlas tells Jack to harvest the slug within the little sister, which would kill her for a boost in Adam. Tenenbaum urges Jack to save the little sisters instead, giving him a plasmid that would safely kill the embedded sea slugs in each little sister, reverting them back into normal girls. Removal of the sea slug from the host under normal circumstances is fatal. Although the host doesn't die immediately, their heartbeat can still be heard, it was likened to taking a patient off life support. Their demise was inevitable. In a forced removal, a large amount of atom could still be obtained from the sea slug. However, Tenenbaum's constant contact with the little sisters and their unsuppressed childlike behavior eventually caused her to seek a way to safely remove the sea slug. In time, she was able to design a plasmid with the ability to restore some characteristics of the little sisters in their pre-sea slug state. This is, however, only a physical change. For example, the appearance and voice are returned to a natural state, they lose their atom-producing ability and strength and healing factor, and are less prone to enragement and fear, recognizing the player as a friend. 
However, they still retain results of their mental conditioning, still treating big daddies as parental figures, seeing the world in a dreamlike wonderland with angels, instinctively using vents or using their extractors to drain corpses of Adam. Presumably, the mental conditioning requires a different cure. Tendenbaum established a safe house for restored little sisters in the tunnels beneath Olympus Heights for that purpose. At this point, I just want to say, if you choose to harvest the sea slug and kill the little sisters throughout the game, you're a horrible person. <laughs> Therefore, for the rest of the events of the story, it's assumed we saved all the little sisters rather than killing them. After Jack saves the little sister and destroys the sea slug with her, Tenenbaum then thanks Jack for his bravery, heart, and sympathy in rescuing the little sister. Eventually, Jack reaches the secret submarine bay and the hidden base used by the smugglers. Waves of splicers sent by Orion begin to invade the area when Jack opens the door to let Atlas into the submarine chamber. As Atlas is forced to escape and Jack fights his way through the splicers, the submarine explodes, killing Atlas's unseen wife and son, Moira and Patrick. A now furious Atlas tells Jack to escape to Arcadia, and his goal becomes revenge, the murder of Andrew Ryan. Arcadia is the living, breathing heart of Rapture. Its lush forests and abundant plant life served to generate life-sustaining oxygen the city needed. It was a tranquil haven for those seeking a respite from the daily rigors of city life to relax in solitude among the many trees and grassy hills. Vacationers seeking something more relaxing than the flashing lights of Fort Frolic could find peace and serenity in the lovely waterfall grotto, tea garden, and other havens beneath the canopy of trees. Arcadia was very popular on Valentine's Day among couples, being an amorous environment. Arcadia was created by botanical scientists on Ryan's payroll, most notably Julie Langford. Before her descent into the underwater city, Langford was a renowned botanist and professor at the University of California, Berkeley, where she had worked since the 1920s. Her research attracted both praise for its groundbreaking findings and controversy for her radical theories. For a time, she worked for the United States government offering assistance with various defoliation projects during the Second World War, including use against the Japanese on Iwo Jima. Langford helped create Arcadia and its agricultural research facility, and later used Adam to grow plants and trees. For a time, Arcadia was a free park for the citizens of Rapture, but Andrew Ryan closed Arcadia to all but paying customers as he believed the service it provided warranted payment. During the Civil War, a cult known as the Saturnine appeared in Arcadia. The cult members worshipped nature and indulged in splicing and drinking Adam as part of their rituals. Their name, the Saturnine, is a reference to the Roman god Saturn, who is the god of agriculture, founder of civilizations, social order, and conformity. The members of this cult wear masks made out of twigs, straw, and leaves, wear red clothing most of the time, and have whitened their faces with face paint. Ryan vowed to put a stop to the Saturnine, whom he saw as an organized religion, as their activities endangered citizens and disrupted the work of Arcadia's scientists. 
The park experienced a number of lockdowns as the violence in the city became worse and was eventually closed to the public altogether. Langford continued to make trips to her office there as she was close to a breakthrough in her project called The Lazarus Vector. Atlas guides Jack through Arcadia where Ryan introduces a toxin into the air that kills all of the trees to impede Jack's progress. Jack, spurred on by Atlas, seeks out Langford to see if she can help. As Jack approaches the locked laboratory, Langford appears on several televisions outside the lab and is startled by what has happened to her trees. She accuses Jack for the death of them, but quickly realizes that it was done by Ryan's hands and asks Jack to find her a sample of Rosa Gallica while she continues working. When Jack gives her the rose, he is granted access to her lab, but when he finally reaches Langford, Ryan floods her office with the gas while reminding her he holds the property rights to Arcadia and the contract for the manufacturer of the Lazarus Vector. Just before dying, Julie scrawls the combination to her safe on the window of her office. Within the safe, Jack finds the formula for the Lazarus Vector, a concoction invented by Langford that promises to revive Arcadia's trees and other plant life. The name Lazarus Vector is a clear reference to biblical figure Lazarus, who was brought back to life by Jesus after a deadly illness. Jack must find the components for the Vector and goes to Farmer's Market. Established in 1948, the Farmer's Market was a lively and popular marketplace in Rapture, a place folks could go to obtain fresh produce, apples, melons, tomatoes, cheese, and other food products. Even pumpkins can be found being hawked by the vendors of the farmer's market. Citizens could stroll through the market's raised walkways, enjoy the wines at Worley Winery, or sample honey produced from the beehives at the Silverwing Apiary. When Ryan made the lush green parks of Arcadia only available to those who could afford it, he chose to leave the farmer's market open to all. This was likely as to not disrupt the businesses of those who rented space from him there. As the war progressed, each of the stalls were abandoned by their owners, fruit and meat was left behind to rot. Some of the plant life became overgrown throughout the market, the winery began to flood, and the swarms of bees in the apiary now freely turned it into a dangerous den for themselves. Jack tracks down the parts required for the Lazarus Vector, chlorophyll solution, distilled water, and enzyme samples. He constructs the device, releases its contents into the atmosphere, and repairs the trees and plant life, thus ending the lockdown. Atlas guides Jack to Fort Frolic's Rapture Metro Station, where he can take a bathysphere to Hephaestus, Rapture's source of power. Ryan is held up in his headquarters, the Rapture Central Control, at the core of Hephaestus. When Jack arrives in Fort Frolic, a man named Sander Cohen cuts off his radio contact with Ryan and Atlas, straining him on the level, causing the bathysphere to Hephaestus to submerge. Fort Frolic's metro station is truly symbolic of the district's artistic style. The station is bathed in purple light, and its walls are decorated with a large mosaic and red drapery. Two of Cohen's statues stand in all of the bathysphere, while four more dance on poles hung from the ceiling. To talk about Fort Frolic, we have to also talk about Sander Cohen. The two were intertwined with one another. And personally, this is my favorite part of the game. Every society, even one at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean, 
needs a place to unwind. A place where adults can indulge themselves with a couple of drinks, go on a spending spree with a day of shopping, take in a show, or try their luck in a casino. In Rapture, one such place was Fort Frolic. Decorated in neon lights, tour share columns, and checkerboard tiles, Fort Frolic was a glamorous setting that featured everything from the fine arts, such as music, film, and theater, to the more salacious distractions, such as strip clubs and gambling. It was also a shopping destination, featured many boutiques selling goods from the most luxurious clothing to the finest tobacco and liquor. The fort was run by Sander Cohen, an artist, director, gallery owner, and a real lunatic, died in the wool psychopath. As one of Rapture's most celebrated artists, he used the district as his personal platform. He presented a number of his works in Cohen's collection or on stage in the Fleet Hall. Every 5th of November, a large celebration was held to commemorate the founding of Rapture. In 1959, during the Rapture Civil War, Cohen finally closed Fort Frolic to the public, resulting in the closure of the theaters, and artists lost their jobs. However, Cohen promised the people of Rapture one final frolic. What the unfortunate citizens didn't realize, however, was that their time in frolic would become a permanent residence. Cohen trapped many people in the district when he closed it off to the public, using them for his twisted works of art. Adjacent to the Rapture Metro, the atrium serves as the hub of Fort Frolic. Still advertising the lost pleasures of Rapture, it is now a hollow shell of its former glory. Lost and long-forgotten memories of what the best of Rapture used to be linger at every turn. Many of the entrances to the rest of Fort Frolic are either closed or destroyed. The atrium is divided into two sections the lower atrium, and the upper atrium. The lower atrium is only a shadow of what it once was, with most of the space shut off or inaccessible to Jack. Cohen's muse box lies besides the stairs in a glass bell jar. The other six places in the lower atrium are blocked off with their signs destroyed, save for an inaccessible strip club called the Seahorse. Upstairs lies the upper atrium. There are many places to see here, First and most notable is the Fleet Hall, where the citizens of Rapture could enjoy theatrical and musical arts. Inside, it offered a chance to catch a drink of Ryan's Club Ale, or a bite of a chocolate cream cake before the show started. Since Rapture's fall, Fleet Hall has remained in relatively good shape, but now contains plaster-covered splicer statues frozen in silent expressions of clapping and cheering. The only other accessible place in the upper level of the atrium is Cohen's collection. Once a place where the wealthy could view and purchase Sander Cohen's art, all that remains are empty canvases and walls that have been burnt to a crisp. Alright, back to Cohen. Sander Cohen is a poet, composer, sculptor, and playwright ruling over Fort Frolic. Originally a renowned artist of many forms who practiced in New York City, Cohen became a leading figure in Rapture's art community. Following the descent of Rapture into chaos, he went mad and became sadistically impassive to the deaths and suffering of others. The splicers within his dominion are subject entirely to his whims, whether in life or death. All around Fort Frolic, examples of his art can be seen. 
plaster figures of people who are, in fact, horrifically murdered splicers and other unfortunate ones coated in plaster. Sander Cohen was a Jewish-American artist who lived in New York. Although information on his life pre-rapture is limited, some of the scant information we have tells us that he eventually became colleagues with an Elgar Vankin and Mimi Tabor. It is implied that he converted them to the Ryanist philosophy since they began speaking of a coming utopia with an almost religious fervor. On the surface, Cohen was a celebrated artist, although he often had to stoop to pleasing the public rather than following his passions. It is suggested that the constraints that the public imposed on his work may have been a contributing factor towards his conversion to Ryanist ideals. During his time in New York, Cohen was good friends with Andrew Ryan, who admired his artistic ability and personally invited him to come to Rapture. However, it might be assumed that Cohen's talent as an artist was looked on by some as dubious at best. Before Rapture descended into chaos, Cohen was a leading figure in the artistic community and social scene of the city. He ran Fort Frolic and owned both a nightclub and several galleries of art throughout the city. He also produced several record albums, the latest of which was the heavily advertised Why Even Ask, as well as theatrical shows, one of which was named Patrick and Moira. As one of Andrew Ryan's most fervent supporters, Cohen was granted the honor of writing the Rapture Anthem, Rise, Rapture, Rise, and he consulted on the building of Ryan Amusements. Cohen was also interested in the art movement of abstract expressionism and participated in Sophia Lamb's celebration of unconscious art in Dionysus Park. After nationalization of Fontaine Futuristics and the subsequent closure of the Little Sisters orphanages, as well as the recently orphaned children caused by Fontaine's followers being sent to Fontaine's department store converted prison, leaving their children behind, Cohen took in the destitute children off the street. He began trafficking the young girls to various individuals willing to pay the right price. The majority were bought by Ryan Industries to be turned into little sisters. As a result of his closeness to Ryan, Cohen became a notable enemy of another singer-actress, Anna Culpepper, who called him Ryan's songbird. Anna Culpepper grew irate with Ryan after observing various infringements on the core ideals of what Rapture was founded upon. She took particular issue with Sander Cohen, an accomplished musician and defender of Ryan's policies, and sought to comment on both men's actions through her professional medium. The end result was the vinyl Ryan Songbird. The album itself was made to criticize the work of Sander Cohen, whom she felt was just a propaganda tool for Ryan. The album left quite an impact, especially on its target. The hypersensitive artist was enraged by the scathing critique of his work. When a paper responded favorably to Culpepper's new Ryan Songbird, Cohen sent an incensed letter to the editor denouncing her as dangerous. Eventually, the negative attention became too much, and he demanded Ryan take care of the problem at its source. This resulted in the assassination of Anna Culpepper by Security Chief Sullivan. Afterwards, Cohen started taking down posters for the album throughout Rapture and stored them in his apartment in Mercury Suites in a desperate attempt to make the criticisms go away. This just goes to show how the close bond between Ryan and Cohen was. During the strife against Ryan by the public, 
he would do anything to improve his public image. With this competition gone, Cohen experienced a rare era of extravagance, before the Civil War forced him to close Fort Frolic. As with Dr. Steinman, Cohen eventually went insane, driven so partly by Adam and out of frustration for the lack of appreciation for his work after the Civil War. An audio diary entitled Requiem for Andrew Ryan reveals that he even regretted his decision to move to Rapture for this reason, and may even have planned to kill Ryan. Quote, I could have been the toast of Broadway, the talk of Hollywood, but instead I followed you to this soggy bucket. When you needed my starlight, I illuminated you, but now I rot, waiting for an audience that doesn't ever come. I'm writing something for you, Andrew Ryan. It's a requiem. Back to the timeline of the game. After Jack is stranded in Fort Frolic Metro Station, Cohen then toys with him, inviting him to Fleet Hall to see a performance. Jack accepts Cohen's invitation to Fleet Hall. As he rides the elevator up, he hears music playing in the distance. This turns out to be the final performance of one of Cohen's disciples, Kyle Fitzpatrick. When Jack encounters Fitzpatrick, he is plastered from the waist down to a grand piano rigged with explosives. He is forced to play Cohen's Scherzo No. 7, well enough to satisfy his mentor. But Cohen is displeased and demands that he continue playing until he gets it right. Eventually, Fitzpatrick gives up in frustration, which triggers the piano to explode, killing him instantly. After the piano explodes, killing Fitzpatrick, Cohen requires Jack to take his photo and place it in his quadage, a masterpiece that he says people will remember him by when he is gone. It consists of seven male figures arranged in different acrobatic poses while displaying four framed photographs. Cohen then sends Jack to Poseidon Plaza, promising to let Jack take the bathysphere to Ryan only after he has killed and photographed his remaining three disciples placing each photo in his quadage. Poseidon Plaza is one of the mall areas of Fort Frolic. With bars, a tobacco shop, and casinos, the plaza was truly a place for the holidays. However, since the Civil War, the only visitors are left are splicers. After receiving orders from Cohen, Jack sets off for the plaza in search of his disciples. He first encounters Martin Finnegan in the frozen tunnel leading to the plaza. With his excessive use of Adam, he is now a Houdini Splicer. Houdini Splicers are a unique kind of Splicer, as they are one of the few types known to be capable of using offensive plasmids while possessing the ability to turn into an invisible cloud of molecules and reform elsewhere. When Finnegan met Cohen in Marseille in 1937, he admired Cohen's paintings. Cohen, by comparison, claims to have simply admired his carriage. An artist in his own right, Finnegan quickly fell in with Cohen, even traveling with him to Rapture. In the underwater city, he held the much sought-after position of one of Cohen's disciples. When Cohen closed Fort Frolic to the public, Finnegan was one of the many people who became trapped inside. While the other prisoners panicked and began fighting each other, Finnegan began scavenging any plasmid and gene tonics he could find. Now spliced to the point of becoming the Iceman, he took over the tunnel connecting the atrium to Poseidon Plaza. From there, he froze other splicers in dramatic poses and prepared for a fight against Cohen himself. 
Jack defeats Finnegan and snaps a photo for Cohen. Jack makes his way out of the frozen tunnel and finds the entrance to the plaza. Poseidon Plaza remains largely intact, mainly suffering only cosmetic damage, such as leaks and holes in the walls. Behind these walls, shadowy figures dart about in the narrow recesses. Although the space is in relatively good shape, the same can't be said for most of the businesses there. The first of many one's fine establishments is Surprise Games of Chance. Surprise was just one of the many gambling and drinking spots in Fort Frolic, but is now in disarray. It is not empty, however, as when Jack arrives, a trio of splicers are engaged in a barroom brawl. Sinclair's Spirits was, at one point, amongst the best places to sample and drink bottles of the finest wines, liquors, and beers in Rapture. However, it is now a wreck, the walls and pillars eroding away by the sea water leaking in from every direction. Upstairs is the most destroyed part of the plaza, with walls coming away and the glass ceiling giving way under the pressure of the sea. There are only four accessible places, two of which are hidden from the ground floor, Rapture Records and the Pharaoh's Fortune Casino. Rapture Records is the most ruined part of the plaza. Once a place where shoppers could go to stock up their record players and jukeboxes, it is now completely razed. Walls stripped bare, fire still burning above the metal ceiling, burnt furniture and bodies chucked around, and water dripping through the sodden ceiling. Cohen's second disciple, Silas Cobb, is held up within Rapture Records. During Rapture's heyday, Cobb was a disciple of Sander Cohen's and showed a lot of admiration for him, describing him as a musical genius. However, this admiration was for the sole reason that Cohen paid Silas's rent. This all changed during the Civil War when Cobb found himself trapped in Fort Frolic. Not taking too kindly to being imprisoned, he quickly turned against his former employer. Taking up refuge in Rapture Records in Poseidon Plaza, he joined forces with a number of splicers who also found themselves trapped and set fire to all of Cohen's music in the store. Some time before Jack's arrival, Cobb used a canister of napalm on some advertisements for Cohen's music in the Southern Mall and left Cohen a message challenging him to a fight in the record store. Jack takes down Disciple number 2 and snaps another photo. Once the third photo is placed in the quadage, Cohen has a paranoid moment, accusing Jack of being a doubter and sends some splicers to kill him. With the lights dimmed, a spotlight on Jack with Waltz of the Flowers from the Nutcracker by Tchaikovsky playing, Jack fights them off long enough for Cohen to calm down. Jack continues making his way around Poseidon Plaza, checking every establishment still traversable. He comes across Robertson's Tobaccoria. It once sold the finest and most luxurious tobacco products in Rapture. Although this shop is not in danger of being flooded or suddenly collapsing, Tobacco has become much less popular in Rapture, replaced by Addictive Adam. Adjacent from the Tabacoria is Eve's Garden. Eve's Garden was an exotic dancing venue. It featured a small central stage with metal poles and a bar, and a seating area for patrons as they watched performances. One of the most well-known performers at Eve's Garden was Jasmine Jolene. Before the construction of Rapture, Jolene was a chorus girl in Sander Cohen's Broadway musicals. Jolene wanted a lead role, but Cohen never showed any interest in her. Andrew Ryan noticed Jolene when he attended Cohen's productions, and he began to act as her patron, even paying for her to take elocution lessons to improve her prospects. 
Brian invited Jasmine to come to Rapture, enticing her with the idea that she could perform in a new community with a foreign resort-like setting. Within Rapture, Jasmine Jolene began working at Eve's Garden in Fort Frolic. With the salary granted to her by Sander Cohen, she was only able to afford housing in Artemis Suites. However, when she became Ryan's mistress, Ryan granted her a comfortable lifestyle and a luxurious apartment in Olympus Heights. In 1956, Jasmine became pregnant by Ryan. She was hesitant to tell Ryan about this, so she asked her friend, Anna Culpepper, for advice. Culpepper advised Jasmine that she should try to become independent so that she wouldn't need to rely on Ryan's continued goodwill to support her. Frank Fontaine discovered this from the audio recordings of her surveillance device planted in Jolene's room. Using Bridget Tenenbaum as an intermediary, Fontaine offered to pay Jolene a large sum of money in exchange for the fetus of her unborn child, which he planned to nurture to become his quote-unquote ace in the hole in his schemes against Ryan. Jasmine accepted the offer, seeing it as her only chance to gain financial independence. Jasmine didn't seem to know of Fontaine's involvement, but this mattered little to Ryan, who brutally murdered her after discovering the arrangement. When Jack explores Eve's garden, he sees several ghostly images of Jasmine Jolene. Ghosts in Bioshock are the leftover memories caused by a crossover of genes during genetic sampling, caused by the use of recycled atom harvested from corpse by little sisters. They are also a way of displaying to the player that the exact repercussions caused by the excessive use of Adam. As he explores backstage, he finds a locked door and sees the shadows of Andrew Ryan and Jasmine as she is pleading with him, a flashback to when she was murdered. When he enters the room, he finds Jasmine's corpse on the bed with a lead pipe, a man's hat, a smoking pipe, and some shoes still present at the scene. Bloody footprints from bare feet lead out the door and turn their way into the blocked-up door of a dame's restroom. Jasmine Jolene is mentioned by Andrew Ryan in his audio diary, Betrayal. Shortly after he dealt with her, Ryan recorded the account wherein he expresses his anger and devastation over Jolene's decision to sell the fertilized embryo. Quote, I visited Eve's garden today. It ended poorly. My seed sold to the enemy. The motive of the whore as yet eludes me, but Atlas approaches, and come what may, I will not be made a slave. I wonder, in recording, do I confess? Just now Sinclair saw me in the corridor, perhaps reading my face. The bastard looked me right in the eye and suggested I make an appointment with Dr. Lamb. End quote. On his way back out, Jack encounters Hector Rodriguez, Cohen's fourth and final disciple. I couldn't find any background on Rodriguez. All I could find is that he comes to believe that art is all grift, and that Cohen's favorite position with Andrew Ryan is simply because Cohen's songs are just pro-rapture propaganda. It is assumed he did some dirty work for Cohen based on his rantings. After a quick fight, Jack kills him and snaps his last photo and heads back to the atrium. After Jack completes the quadditch, Cohen finally reveals himself, among a host of spotlights and confetti, descending the staircase in the atrium of Fort Frolic to congratulate Jack on his work. Cohen then rewards Jack by opening one of the glass cases near the stage. 
If Jack chooses to attack Cohen or attack the Quadditch, Cohen fights like a Houdini Spicer, teleporting around the area and throwing fireballs at him. If Jack chooses to not kill Cohen at Fort Frolic, then he will encounter him later in his apartment at Mercury Suites. There, Cohen welcomes him into his home, saying, Come into the light, little moth. Come in. Jack enters and sees two Houdini Splicers dancing to the music of a precariously balanced phonograph. If Jack disrupts the dancers and kills them, Cohen will then descend from his room upstairs and attack as a Houdini Splicer, just like he would if the player attacks him in Fort Frolic. However, if the player leaves the dancers alone, then it is entirely possible for Cohen to survive the events of Bioshock. After Cohen's masterpiece is finished, communications are opened up and Jack is granted access to the bathysphere to Hephaestus. Hephaestus, home of the Hephaestus Power Facility, is the main power production source for Rapture and is located at the southern end of the city. Designed by Andrew Ryan, it harnesses the heat from geothermal vents on the ocean floor. Hephaestus was one of the initial facilities built in Rapture. Without it, Rapture could not have been powered. It also contains the private office of Andrew Ryan. In the post-construction era, many of the specialists who built Rapture worked in various workshops or became maintenance employees. During the Civil War, the facility was continuously attacked by rebels, as taking control of the city's main power source would have granted them victory in the war. Many workers were killed during these attacks, and a number of attempts were made on Andrew Ryan's life. Adam's sickness and increased paranoia of being murdered led to the workers killing each other, and the workshops are now littered with the corpses of people who once kept Hephaestus functioning. The metro station to Hephaestus is whirring with life, as massive geared machines turn in the water and large pipes in the walls and ceiling pump flows around the city. The station, decorated with Ryan's image of strength, is far cleaner than any of the others visited by Jack, but the metal floor and wall panelings make the station feel harsher than any of the others as well. A glass tunnel circles a large rock formation on the sea floor and connects to the main building. Jack then passes through Ryan's trophy room on his way to central control. This room is on the way to the control center and office of Andrew Ryan, which is guarded by an electromagnetic lock system. Here, various corpses, including those of Anya Anderstotter and Bill McDonough, are impaled on the pillars as part of Ryan's morbid warning display. Upon entering the room, Ryan delivers an unsettling sermon, referring to his trophies as quote-unquote worms, and tells Jack that he is no different from the others who have tried and failed to assassinate him. He menacingly concludes his speech by saying, I haven't chosen a spot for you on the wall yet. Let me know if you have a preference. The audio diary found on Anya Anderstadter's corpse gives a clue for a method of breaking into Andrew Ryan's barricaded office, an electromagnetic pulse bomb to override the magnetic locks. Guided by the audio diary, Jack finds the parts needed and assembles the bomb. He sets it at the core of Hephaestus and it overloads. After activating the EMP bomb, Jack overloads harmonic core number three, deactivates the magnetic locks on Ryan's door, and enters Ryan's central command. As Jack passes the airlock, Ryan activates Rapture's self-destruct sequence, swearing that Atlas will never take the city. 
The objective now is to find and kill Ryan and deactivate the self-destruct using his genetic key. That genetic key is a card-like device that can unlock doors and operate machinery in Rapture, specifically controlled by a person's genetic code. The door to Ryan's office has been sabotaged, but Jack can access an adjoining room through an air vent up on the catwalk. In this room, he finds himself facing a wall in which there are pictures of Frank Fontaine, Bridget Tenenbaum, Yisu Chong, Jasmine Jolene, and Andrew Ryan, all linked to a picture of Jack. Security photos of Jack are scattered across the table, along with many other papers and a couple of audio diaries. But perhaps the most shocking discovery about the room are the words, Would you kindly, written in red ink across the wall. Jack continues on and finally finds Andrew Ryan casually playing golf in his office. Throughout the previous level, Ryan had hinted over the PA that he had deduced Jack's identity and origins, and here Ryan proves it. He reveals that Jack is being used by Atlas by means of conditioned phrase, Would you kindly? Jack remembers all of the times that Atlas has controlled him via the command phrase. What comes next is the core of Ryan's philosophy. It's best introduced through the dialogue given to Jack as he enters the office. Quote, The assassin has overcome my final defense, and now he's come to murder me. In the end, what separates a man from a slave? Money? Power? No. A man chooses. A slave obeys. You think you have memories. A farm. A family. An airplane. A crash. And then this place. Was there really a family? Did that airplane crash or was it hijacked? Forced down by something less than a man. Something bred to sleepwalk through life until activated by a simple phrase from their kindly master? Was a man sent to kill or a slave? A man chooses. A slave obeys. End quote. After this, Ryan leaves his room and begins to toy with Jack, commanding him, by the use of Would You Kindly, to sit, stand, run, and stop. Then Ryan hands Jack his golf club and commands Jack to kill him. As Jack beats Ryan to death with the club, Ryan yells, A man chooses, a slave obeys. After Ryan dies, Atlas commands Jack to grab the self-destruct key and deactivate the city's self-destruct timer. As soon as Jack does so, Atlas reveals his true identity, the supposedly dead former mobster Frank Fontaine. Fontaine leaves Jack in the locked room and activates the security systems. Security bots swarm the room, but a little sister leads Jack into a vent to escape. While fleeing, Jack falls down a vertical shaft and is knocked unconscious. Choice is one of the major themes of Bioshock and is inherent in Andrew Ryan's personal philosophy. The theme of self-determination and the question of destiny in the game is embodied by this phrase. During the game, the player, Jack, is given many choices, both tactically and morally, but his actions turn out to be illusory. His will has been controlled and driven by Frank Fontaine under the guise of Atlas, via the phrase he'd been conditioned to obey, would you kindly. Ryan, once he identified that Jack was actually his illegitimate son, demonstrated controlling Jack with the code phrase forcing him to obey pet commands to convince him of how powerless he really was. 
Andrew Ryan then used his phrase to have Jack kill him. Unable to stop, Jack was forced to acknowledge that he never even had a choice. This idea of free will is a critical point in looking at the game mechanics of Bioshock. You, as the player, go through the entire game thinking these choices are their own. The illusion of choice goes beyond the game. It reaches out to you and asks you the question, are you really in control? From the very beginning, Jack has been controlled by Fontaine. The only choice that Jack has is whether or not to save or harvest the Little Sisters. It defines who he is. This is the only reflection of independence in the entire game. Jack is meant to be a vessel for the player. The illusion of choice extends to you playing as well. I'll leave it to Andrew Ryan to say it the best. Quote, We all make choices, but in the end our choices make us. End quote. Would You Kindly was programmed to function as a trigger for the post-hypnotic suggestions programmed into the mind of Jack. The system was created by Su Chong and was used by Frank Fontaine, posing as Atlas, to control Jack's actions while guiding him through the rapture to achieve his plans for killing Andrew Ryan. Jack is the son of Andrew Ryan and Jasmine Jolene. The embryo that Jolene sold to Tenenbaum that we discussed back in Eve's garden was actually Jack. He was genetically modified to grow at a rapid pace, thus explaining why he has grown to a man within just four years. Jack's similar genetic structure to Andrew Ryan meant that he would be able to use the city's bathospheres that were in lockdown, be resurrected at Vita Chambers, and the automated security of Rapture would not be as effective against him. Su Chong was involved in Fontaine's project to create an ace-in-the-hole weapon, namely Jack. Su Chong monitored Jack's rapid development and implanted in him at least two known mind control triggers. Would You Kindly, codenamed WYK, which caused Jack to obey unquestioningly, and Code Yellow, which, when activated, would ultimately stop Jack's heart. To test the mind control phrase, Su Chong ordered Jack to break the neck of his puppy. Initially, the boy refused, but when Su Chong asked him again, this time using the W-Y-K phrase, Jack had no choice but to obey. Despite his obvious reluctance, he snapped the dog's neck, killing her. Su Chong developed an antidote, Lot 192, for this mental conditioning, as Fontaine requested because he worried he would, quote, end up on the wrong side of grift, unquote. Fontaine admits that just about everything he said as Atlas was a lie. Atlas was a name Fontaine adopted when he staged his own death in a shootout at Fontaine Fisheries in 1958, when Security Chief Sullivan's city security forces were closing in on him for smuggling. Referring to playing Atlas as his longest con, where Fontaine had created his new persona as a working-class hero, who could rally people against Ryan, use them to seize power, and eventually take Adam to the surface to become rich. In 1956, Frank Fontaine approached Dr. Steinman with an unusual request. Fontaine asked Steinman to perform surgery on himself and Reggie, making the underling look like Fontaine and Fontaine look like a completely different person. This was part of Fontaine's plan for his Atlas persona, and he made sure that Steinman never revealed his operation to anyone. Atlas's family, Moira and Jack, were actually taken from the name of one of Sander Cohen's plays found earlier in the game while exploring Fort Frolic. 
Sometime in 1958, before Fontaine faked his own death in a shootout with Sullivan's forces, Jack was smuggled out of Rapture in a bathysphere and sent to the surface as a sleeper agent, living out his pre-programmed life as Jack Wynand until Frank Fontaine activated him. Upon Fontaine's summons using the trigger phrase, Would you kindly, Jack boarded a plane in 1960 that passed near Rapture's location in the North Atlantic. He hijacked it, forcing it to crash land in the coordinates of the lighthouse, the main entrance to Rapture. Okay, back to the gameplay. When Jack awakens in Tenenbaum's safe house, she informs him that she undid part of Fontaine's mental conditioning and suggests that they work together to undo the rest of Fontaine's control on Jack. Jack is no longer vulnerable to the would-you-kindly command, but Fontaine quickly proves that he still has control over Jack by activating the phrase Code Yellow. If you remember, this causes Jack Hart to begin the slow process of shutting down. Tenenbaum tells Jack that since Su Chong was the one that built his mind, he should travel to Su Chong's flat in Mercury Suites to find some answers. Tenenbaum then stays in constant communication with Jack for the remainder of the game. In a city like Rapture, space and luxury came at a high cost. However, for those who could afford it, Mercury Suites provided both in spades. With their unique multi-level layouts, open floor plans, floor-to-ceiling windows, and opulently detailed finishes, the apartments quickly became home to the creme de la creme of Rapture society. This included some of the city's greatest minds. During the Civil War, the building and its tenants became targets for followers of Atlas. The site suffered severe interior damage resulting in many of its apartments being abandoned by their residents. Makeshift barriers and turrets were set up at the entrance but had little effect against the swarms of spliced up attackers. As the war dragged on and the populace's mind warped from atom abuse, some of the residents even turned on their own neighbors. Just as the entrance is in view, Jack's greeted by the sounds of Cole Porter's You're the Top and a welcome party of a nitro splicer and a pair of leadhead splicers brandishing machine guns. After dealing with the splicers, Jack finally enters Mercury Suites. The front desk has been heavily barricaded with sandbags and security booths to protect the residents. Though, with all the corpses scattered about, the site clearly still saw some serious action. Immediately beyond is the atrium connecting the accessible floors, and it's a grim sight. The once bright halls of the suites have gone dim. The corpse of a woman is lashed to a tree and a small planter in the center. Su Chong's flat is the first on the left. Some poor soul died desperately on the good doctor's doorstep. As Jack enters, Fontaine warms him to be suspicious of Tenenbaum. The dining room has been barricaded, the stairway up to the second floor is caved in, and the living room and study have flooded. A splicer emerges from the dining area. The kitchen is a grisly mess with corpses and blood splatter scattered about the space. One bloody corpse is spread out on top of the counter as an anatomy experiment, a cannibalized source of fresh meat or something far worse. A thuggish splicer investigates the bodies. The audio diary, Mind Control Antidote, Located in the study, reveals the existence of Lot 192. Su Chong explains, quote, Fontaine's become some kind of boogeyman in rapture. That myth gives him power. But peel back Flim Flam and the humbug, he's just another con man. And like all con men, he worries he'll end up on the wrong side of grift. That's why he's commissioned Lot 192. 
the antidote to the mental control plasmid. Fontaine said I better not tell anybody about the antidote, not even Tenenbaum, and Su Chong is inclined to listen. End quote. Tenenbaum confesses to having stolen a dose of the serum for examination and believes that the rest of the formula will probably be located in Su Chong's free clinic in Apollo Square. Apollo Square was once a lower-class residential district in Rapture that housed many of the city's workers. It was then condemned to contain Atlas's followers during the Civil War. Apollo Square was a hub of Rapture's transportation and connecting routes. Branches connect to a large residential area of the city's working-class citizens, Artemis Suites, and the tenement-like Hestia Chambers, which had become one of Frank Fontaine's Little Sisters Orphanage and a Fontaine's Home for the Poor. As Ryan started to intern Atlas loyalists and other lawbreakers, much of the Apollo Square area was locked down to contain them and to protect the rest of the city. When Jack arrives at the site, the scars of both Ryan's and Atlas slash Fontaine's operations are visible everywhere. The metro system trolley is destroyed, and the entire residential area is in ruins. Pictures of missing people are posted all over the walls. Another location found by Jack is Atlas's headquarters, which Fontaine, after he took the new persona of Atlas, used to organize and plot additional attacks upon the city. Atlas enlisted many of Fontaine's poorhouse residents in his quote-unquote army, and also gained the loyalty of some of who were previously allied to Ryan. Diane McClintock was one who joined Atlas's cause after Ryan ignored her to fight his war. She became disgusted with the actions Ryan had taken while attempting to bring stability to Rapture. Jack continues to make his way towards Su Chong's clinic, which is located on the second floor of Artemis Suites. Artemis Suites is a working-class residence in Rapture. Artemis Suites was never meant to be the pinnacle of luxury. That honor was reserved for the apartments in the neighboring district, Olympus Heights. Rather, the Artemis was built on an economical and utilitarian basis. Its residence consisted primarily of the many working-class individuals who kept Rapture running. It is evident from the interior that the place was incredibly poor. Multiple families shared individual tenement-style apartments, and facilities like kitchens and bathrooms were communal. This stands in stark contrast to the spacious, luxurious flats of Mercury Suites and even those in the Sinclair Deluxe. Still, the establishment was in close proximity to tram lines, and this along with its own bathysphere station meant the residents had better access to work than the unemployed in the slums of Popper's Drop. As the economic disparity between Rafter's economic classes continued to grow, mounting tension and unrest festered within Apollo Square. When the Civil War finally broke out, the building suffered heavy damage as Ryan's security sought to flush out anyone associated with Atlas and the Rebels. When the Rapture Bank crash and further collapse of society left many of its residents without work, the conditions became even worse. Once Ryan had Apollo Square turned into an internment camp, the apartments in Artemis Suites were simply left open to anyone who was unfortunate enough to be locked up in the district. Jack finally reaches Su Chong's free clinic after fighting off countless waves of splicers. Located on the second floor of Artemis Suites, the clinic served as one of the chief medical facilities in the district. Similar to Frank Fontaine's charity works, 
Fontaine's Home for the Poor, the Little Sisters Orphanages, and Fontaine Clinics, Suchon's Free Clinic was created as part of a business venture rather than as a genuine act of charity. Many of the working-class citizens in Apollo Square who could not afford the expenses of the medical pavilion came to the clinic, seeking first aid and health care. Su Chong used it as a place to further his experiments by using his patients as test subjects. A much larger research laboratory was hidden behind the clinic. In this lab, Su Chong experimented on many projects, especially his last, Lot 255, the protector bond mechanism between big daddies and little sisters. Su Chong believed that the bond was not fully functional and was killed by a bouncer when he struck a little sister out of frustration. The protector impaled Su Chong with his drill, pinning him to his desk where he remained even after the clinic was placed under lockdown throughout the Civil War. Jack takes a dose of the Lot 192 found on Su Chong's desk. Finally cured from manipulation by Fontaine, Jack decides to track him down at Point Prometheus. Located at the edge of the city, Point Prometheus was Rapture's genetic research center mainly focused on the development of plasmids and genetic modifications. Point Prometheus also featured its own memorial museum, dedicated to biology and notably Rapture's sea life. When Jack finally encounters Fontaine at Point Prometheus, Tenenbaum demands Jack pursue the man, but Fontaine manages to escape to the proving grounds. The door is locked and Jack can't access it. Tenenbaum formulates a plan for Jack to trick the Little Sisters into thinking he's a big daddy so that he may use a Little Sister to lead him to Fontaine. Tenenbaum directs him to go through failsafe armored escorts, Little Wonder's educational facility, and optimize eugenics to find all of the components and supplies to become a big daddy. Jack first heads to failsafe armored escorts to acquire pieces of the big daddy suit. It was also the main facility of which prisoners of Persephone were brought to be made into Big Daddies. Two sets of doors lead into the facility. Because of the delicate nature of the Big Daddy conversion process, individuals pass through an antechamber in which special chemicals are sprayed on them to remove hazardous substances or infectious materials so as to prevent contamination. After going through initial preparations, candidates would have been subjective to conditioning to eliminate their free will. A large vat in the center of the room would hold the unfortunate individual while scientists and technicians orchestrated the process. Helmets for the Big Daddy suits were also stored here. Jack grabs one and moves on to the suit assembly area. In suit assembly, ordinary diving suits were treated to become the battle armor and second skin to the Big Daddies. In two separate testing rooms, the bodysuits were engineered to be both bullet and fire resistant to better protect them from whatever perils they may face in rapture. Candidates would be taken to the area's large central chamber and attached to one of three large gyroscopic tables where the suits, gloves, boots, and helmet would be surgically grafted onto their skin. Jack grabs a suit and moves on. The next step would be candidate conversion where the Big Daddies are placed into a large yellow chemical vat to have their final modifications applied. Once the Big Daddies were protection bonded, they would guard any little sister they were escorting from enemies. Tenenbaum had assumed the boots would be here, but only the gloves are present. 
an audio diary points Jack in the right direction. The Mendel Memorial Research Library. Back when Point Prometheus was Rapture's premier center for scientific study, the Mendel Memorial Research Library served an important purpose. The library was a treasure trove of knowledge to be used by local scientists, engineers, and technicians looking for reference material or just looking to expand their skill set. In addition to the richly appointed decor, the Mendel boasted an impressive collection of books, periodicals, and records. Jack journeys here in search of the missing boots. Supplies can be found by the desks in the center, such as film, a gene tonic, and most importantly, the much-needed boots. With the complete suit, Jack heads to the Little Wonders educational facility in search of the pheromones required for the pairing of a little sister. The Little Wonders educational facility serves as the main facility for little sister creation and training. After setting up the little sister's orphanages, Fontaine would have had his scientists take the parentless children to the Little Wonders educational facility. The friendly-looking foundation lulled the public into a false sense of the children's security and safety. Once inside, the children were surgically implanted with a sea slug so that they would produce large amounts of atom for Fontaine. When Andrew Ryan took down Frank Fontaine, he nationalized the mobster's business assets and took control of the Little Wonders facility. Though he originally shut down the orphanages, Ryan saw the necessity for the atom production process and eventually chose to employ the girls as a marketing device. Ryan rebranded the Little Wonders educational facilities as a finishing school for young girls. Here, the slug-implanted children were maintained and supervised and wore face paint in order to hide their identities from their parents and the public. Eventually, when gatherers were to be used to recover additional atom, the children were subjected to an extensive battery of mental conditioning to convert them into being effective gatherers. Because of the serious nature of the conversion process, security was tight in Little Wonders. In addition to the turrets, the security monitoring room also had several rounds of electric buck, a shotgun, and a bot shutdown panel. Even in Rapture's chaos, the facility was tightly guarded. A thuggish splicer patrols the lower floor, while a wintry Houdini splicer walks the upper catwalks. Many of the educational posters in this area are simply painted over versions of Fontaine Futuristics posters, a sign of the hasty conversion. Looking closely at the surface of the posters under good lighting will show the raised letters of the words Fontaine Futuristics. The central part of the bottom level contains six cells made up to look like little girls' rooms. Each cell has a heavy reinforced door that can only be opened with a mechanized switch, several of which are inoperable. Each door has a small slot at the bottom for sliding food into the occupant, and each cell is labeled with a number to help the scientists keep track of their subjects. The inside of each cell is decorated in pink and contains a bed and toys to keep the little sisters occupied. There are also large posters placed to remind the little sisters what their job is, showing pictures of angels slash corpses, the little sister vents, and themselves walking hand in hand with their big daddy protectors. Many of the rooms are also featuring drawings left by the little girls revealing the sad lives the children lived. These sketches subjects include dead dogs, doodles of Mr. Bubbles, 
and two tombstones labeled Mommy and Daddy, with teddy bears placed underneath. One room even contains the body of an unfortunate splicer, with numerous atom extraction needles sticking out of him, suggesting that the splicer was killed by the little sisters carrying out their job too well. The seventh room on the bottom level served as a conditioning chamber. In addition to the education posters, there was a Skinner box style training machine. This was designed to decrease the little girl's longing for their mothers and recondition in them to feel trust toward their big daddy protectors. This simple machine featured two video screens, one showing the silhouette of a woman and the other showing the silhouette of a big daddy. Pressing the button under the woman gives a mild electric shock, while pressing the button under the big daddy causes a bag of chips to fall from the dispenser. On the second floor above the cells is a walkway with desks and filing cabinets used by the caretakers and scientists researching the little sisters. The scientists could look down over the open top of every cell room to monitor each little sister individually. A pheromone sample could be found on the desk near the stairs. A final room, farthest from the entrance, was the facility where the little girls were operated on to implant the sea slugs into their bellies and turn them into little sisters. Gisu Chong was the primary surgeon in those procedures. This room also contains a storage area with many little sister dresses laying in a pile. Here, Jack sees the ghost of a little sister who begs Papa Su Chong not to put her on the operating table. When a girl outlived her usefulness or was uncooperative, she was killed in this room. With the pheromone sample in hand, Jack heads for the final piece of the Big Daddy disguise, the voice modifier at Optimized Eugenics. Optimized Eugenics is the main research and testing facility of Point Prometheus and Rapture, dedicated to prototyping, analyzing, and testing of new plasmids and other genetic enhancements. Optimized Eugenics had equipment for the development of new experimental plasmids, analysis and prototyping rooms, a live testing area, storage for test subjects, and even a backup generator which would prevent any potential power shortage that might endanger the experiments and test subjects. On the north side of the facility is the testing area where experimental plasmids and other genetic enhancements were injected in live test subjects immersed in large vats of yellow chemicals, one of them lying broken on the floor. A control room overlooks the vats with several monitoring consoles to control the experiments. This is also where the voice box modification prototype 084569F is stored, a requirement to modify the larynx of candidates to the protector program and make their voice sound guttural. With all of the Big Daddy pieces gathered, Jack heads to Point Prometheus. After he is turned into a Big Daddy, Tenenbaum sends a little sister to help guide Jack through the proving grounds and then to give him her harvesting tool. While hiding in special exhibits wing of the old memorial museum, Fontaine splices himself further, strapping himself into a machine that injects a massive amount of atom. Taunting Jack, he proclaims that no one can stop him, as he is too powerful. Jack finally reaches Fontaine in his lair atop Rapture's highest building. The mob boss has spliced himself into a hulking, statuesque monster with three major plasmid powers. Every time Fontaine returns to his machine after fighting and being damaged, Jack can extract the atom out of him with a little sister's needle, weakening him. Before Fontaine is fully drained, he disables Jack, 
but is ambushed and killed by a swarm of little sisters. They stab Fontaine repeatedly with their needles, taking the remaining Adam from his body. Bridget Tenenbaum had previously explained that Adam forces the body into dependency, with progressive mental and physical degeneration and an accelerated need for the Adam. In the end, deprived of his Adam, Fontaine's body simply could not survive. Three endings are possible depending on how the player interacted with the Little Sisters, all of which are narrated by Dr. Tenenbaum. If Jack harvested and therefore killed all of the Little Sisters, the game ends with Jack turning on the sisters after defeating Fontaine, presumably killing them all and taking their Adam. Tenenbaum narrates what occurred, condemning Jack and his actions, voice thick with anger and contempt. Later in the second ending, a ballistic missile submarine carrying a nuclear missile comes across the wreckage of the plane and is suddenly surrounded by bathyspheres containing splicers. The splicers kill all hands aboard the sub and take control of it. If the player saves some of the Little Sisters but killed a fair few as well, the ending is visually identical to the second one, though the tone of Tenenbaum's voice is a sad one as opposed to an angry one. I hold the last ending to be the true ending. If the player rescued all of the Little Sisters, therefore saving their lives, the ending shows five Little Sisters returning to the surface with Jack and living full lives under his care, including their graduation from college, getting married, and having children. It ends on a heartwarming tone, with an elderly Jack surrounded on his deathbed by all five of the adult Little Sisters. And there you have it, my complete in-depth look at Bioshock. I have to say, I really enjoyed researching for this episode. There were a lot of things that I found out that I actually didn't know before going into it. I want to again thank patron Dalton Troy for supporting the podcast and suggesting this episode. If you want to support the podcast and suggest an episode for yourself, go to patreon.com slash explorer, all one word, and become a patron. I want to thank you for listening, and I'll see you guys next time.